A state task force is now underway to study how California could compensate its black citizens for the historic wrongs of slavery and systemic racism. We'll talk with former Assemblywoman, now Secretary of State Shirley Weber, who pushed the bill through the legislature to establish that task force. And former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs on the after effects of an experiment in direct cash payments to people who need it most. Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and CAP Radio. I'm Nigel Duara in Los Angeles. And I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. So, Nigel, last week we talked to Julie Cart and she gave us an update on Big Basin State Park and the Redwoods there. And I saw a story from another part of the state in Sequoia National Park, which is in the Sierra Nevada east of Fresno. And it said that 10% of the world's giant sequoias burned in the castle fire last year. Yeah, those are these huge trees that capture a ton of carbon. They act as a carbon sink in these big stands of these mature trees. So what this is going to do is going to have a pretty big impact, at least locally, on how much carbon's in the atmosphere. And that does not help with climate change. Right. And this is also just a reflection of bigger, hotter fires that these massive trees are getting eaten up in flames. Right. And unless we can hit the rewind switch and undo a lot of the damage we've done to the planet, we probably should go see these while we still can. Oh, that makes me really sad. Well, that makes me sad. Here's something I'm mad about. You remember last summer, lots of protests, lots of journalists caught up in the protests. I got detained down in Hollywood. Now there's a bill in the legislature that would have said Journalists can cover protests, period. I remember that. I remember the protests. I remember this bill. I did not know you had got detained, so I'm very sorry to hear that. But this bill was changed recently, um, and it now says that journalists can cover protests if they have permission from the commanding law enforcement officer on the scene there. Yeah, isn't that great? It wasn't until I got to L.A. that I was told that I needed police permission to do my job. The bill is supposed to end this practice, right? But instead, it could end up reinforcing it. What it kind of does in this version is to codify what the police are already doing at the scene. You show up and you say, can I cover this? And the commanding officer may say yes or no. And that's a problem because of, you know, the First Amendment. So, Nicole, how are they going about doing this? Well, the bill passed the Senate this week, and now it will go to the Assembly. Um, But Democratic senators are getting a lot of heat for voting for this. And some of them, even though they voted for it, are now saying that they hope the bill gets changed back to the original version in the Assembly, which is kind of weird. Like, why vote for it in the first place if you don't like it? It is weird. This is the part of politics I don't understand. I mean, I guess I do get it because they are on a schedule here. They have to move the bills along if they want them to make it to the end. And speaking of the racial justice movement, there was a pretty big development this week. Members of a first-in-the-nation task force met for the first time. They're launching a two-year-long process that will study how the state could implement reparations for slavery and systemic racism. Yeah, the task force is a result of AB 3121, a bill proposed by then-Assemblywoman Dr. Shirley Weber and signed last year by Governor Newsom. Weber spoke at the very first meeting about why she pursued this here in the Golden State. Some asked us, why in California? Why not somewhere else? Why did we not do it in the South? But we came to understand very clearly that California has the ability and the power to do it. And if not us, then who? We have waited for almost 40 years for the Congress to basically pass H.R. 40, and we're still waiting for them to take seriously the development of a national task force 
So we believe very strongly that we can move forward. The task force will study questions of who would pay for reparations and who would receive them. It does not have the power to impose or implement any of its own findings, but it'll make recommendations to the legislature, likely in about two years. I spoke some time ago with Weber, who's now California's first black secretary of state, about the reparations bill, as well as several others introduced last year around issues of social justice, including police and parole reform and ethnic studies courses at UC campuses. I asked her which of them she thought would make the single biggest difference in improving the lives of black and brown Californians. I think if I had to pick one that I think would make the greatest amount of difference in the lives of African-Americans, it probably will be the reparations bill, uh, particularly for African-Americans. That's the one bill of all the bills we've done that's really targeted toward African-Americans, while others uh, deal with those who may have um, economic issues or you know diversity issues and those kinds of things. And we, we do all of those. But if you say which one's going to really affect African-Americans the most, it probably will be the reparations bill. And I think it will probably have the greatest effect on all of California because of the issue of raising this question and, and, and putting together a task force that's supposed to do the kind of work and research and in-depth conversation that needs to happen. It should really inform all of California about just how difficult, but more important, how pervasive racism has been and is in most societies when you, when it's instituted. It doesn't just quickly go away. It has it has itself embedded in so many aspects of that culture. But if you don't change dramatically in a very aggressive and affirmative way, you end up uh, wondering why you're doing certain things because you're still lingering from the effects of it. Um, where should this reparations task force start? And, and what other forms of reparations could there be besides just like cash payments? Well, hopefully it won't just be cash payments because I, I, you know, I look at the situation when you're dealing with something that's 400 years old, it's hard to say we can give you $20,000 and make you well. I mean, that, that is not likely to happen. I mean, you know, because of the issues that we face. Um, there's been some work already done on California and, and reparations and damages that are done and laws that were passed that limited people's ability to own property or to, to basically defend themselves in court and all kinds of things like that. So we've had a number of those as well as redlining with regards to business ownership and loans and, and looking at housing and, and, the, and the wealth gap. So there's been quite a bit of work already done on reparations. We hope that the commission will build on that and utilize that as a foundation to ask critical questions like what is the damage that's been done and what was what was the cause of it and how do we have a uh, remedy what is taking place and so california was not quote unquote a slave state yet it did a number of things to support slavery it did a number of things to treat african americans as second class citizens in in the state and the effect that had on the citizenry and and its opportunities in terms of economic development business education those kinds of things we hope will be revealed as we look at the legislation that was passed and the, and the various practices that existed in California. Well, that leads me to my next question, which was, what would you say or what do you say to opponents of these measures who say that, you know, they don't, they're not slave owners, made, their families, their ancestors may not have been slave owners, um, but as taxpayers, they will probably be paying into some kind of fund. Well, you know, they're absolutely correct. They are not slaveholders and they were not a part or around at the time that some of this took place, but they still benefited from it and they continue to benefit from it. Because if you uh, take land or you own land and you have the opportunity to buy land and own land uh, and you were uh, part of an insurance company that basically insured slaves and made sure that the slave system stayed in place, 
while you didn't own a slave and you may not have uh, been around at that time because it was so long ago, you still have access to that wealth. You still have access to the attitude that society has about that wealth and you still prosper from it. And so there's no question that that while the, those who are walking around now can say, well, I wasn't a slaveholder. Why am I having to do this? It's because you live on the benefits of, of, of what slavery pr produced and you see the benefits every day. Um, the other day I was talking with someone with this. Well, you know, some poor white males don't get into college because they're poor and they don't get in. And that's unfair that some poor black person got in college. I said, well, the reality is if you're born white male in this society, you were born with the benefit. You're born with a benefit over women. You're born with a benefit over people of color. And the data shows it, that a white male who graduated from high school will make more than an African-American who graduated from college. I say, so that in indicates how unequal the world is. And so that person may want to complain that, that, that they could have gotten in or didn't get in, but they still have opportunities that others don't have. And they still can access those opportunities and, and basically enjoy a better and more comfortable life. Do you think that there will be momentum for bolder ideas on racial justice and police reform? I'm hoping that there will be. You know, California is it's, it's interesting as California being a very progressive state uh, in many areas is probably the most regressive when it comes to law enforcement. And we discovered that in terms of our the various bills that have been put forward. We have the greatest amount of resistance uh, to the kind of change that needs to happen. And decertification is such a simple concept. Um, because almost every profession wants to get rid of the people who are giving them a bad reputation. And, um, and yet our, our, our state doesn't have uh, adequate process and procedures to accomplish that. Uh, so while California is very progressive in some ways, it is very regressive in those areas. Do you, where do you think that comes from? Is that just like lingering stuff from, from the 90s and the law and order sort of era? You know, it's hard to say because we're, you know, we, uh, because we do other things so well. But we have such powerful and strong unions uh, and it's with such a big state that it's hard to somehow or another to manage all these things. Uh, and the unions have been very powerful. And so they, they it's the same is true with education and everything else. When I look at some of the things, we're like the last ones to do the kind of reform, deep reform that takes place, maybe because people think we're so large that it becomes hard to do it as a whole state rather than doing it as small regions. Um, but it is it, 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 it's interesting that it reached back to the to the 70s and the 60s in terms of of that. And maybe because we spent so much time looking at other places and looking at things that, that where we had Jim Crow laws and all these other kinds of things that we kind of skipped over California in terms of looking at some of the things. And then when we get to get down to it and really begin to talk about some systemic change and see the results, uh, it becomes difficult at that point for to get people in California and get even in the legislature to accept the fact that we have issues. So it's been a long time coming, tens of years who, where there's been almost little or no reform at all. And when it happens, when it comes, it becomes very difficult and very hard. And, and you know, and reasonably so, people have a tendency to respect law enforcement, and they should. Uh, but at the same time, they also have to hold them accountable. And that accountable piece is the, is the hardest piece. Hmm. Do you think that legislation is enough to make some of these big social changes that you've been an advocate for? Well, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a, it's, it, it's a beginning and it has to be implemented. And so what, what we see is that depending on, uh, and, and, it's, and it works down the line. I mean, I see some agencies that really take it to heart, train all their people, 
hold them accountable and really get the job done. And then I see others who say, oh, well, you know, the, the, the legislature will change in the next few years. So don't worry about it. Just don't get in trouble. Let anybody know about it. And as a result, then you find yourself battling that. It's uh, really hard. But legislation is a first step. It's a first step because it then arms the community with the kinds of rules and, and that they can hold people accountable for, uh, that they can litigate about. And so we're still we're having now new litigations for 392 and some others where people violated the law. And at least it gives you the opportunity to tell your story in court, uh, because now you have the you have the law on your side. You have the legislation on your side. And, and, and eventually people kind of adhere to it. That was California Secretary of State Shirley Weber. The Reparations Task Force is expected to meet 10 times over the next two years, and their plan is to release an initial report to the legislature by this time next year, and then another on recommendations for reparations in 2023. Coming up, we talk with former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs about his longtime advocacy for the idea of a guaranteed basic income, the results of an experiment in a city, and how the idea has spread to other cities across the country. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from CAP Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Nigel Duara. So during the pandemic, we saw a lot of direct payments to low and moderate income people in the form of stimulus checks. And people seem to like it. But for Stockton residents, it wasn't a new idea. For two years, 125 people received $500 a month, no strings attached. It's a concept known as Universal Basic Income, or UBI. Yeah, and Stockton's wasn't technically a UBI program because only a few people got money. But the privately funded program was seen as a success. Now, other cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Oakland are looking at doing versions of it too. And Governor Newsom wants to give cities $35 million over five years for pilot programs to help reach more people. We're joined now by the former mayor of Stockton who started that program and is now advising the governor on economic inequality. Michael Tubbs, welcome to California State of Mind. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's talk more about guaranteed income. This is just the idea that everybody gets a certain amount of money, no strings attached. And most people probably know this from when Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang talked about it on the campaign trail. But you actually did it in Stockton. So I guess set the table for us on what this program means and why you think it's necessary. We launched our guaranteed income pilot, which is a little bit different from universal basic income. So universal basic income is the idea that everyone receives dollars. Guaranteed income means that everyone who absolutely needs it gets the money and we may not get to Bill Gates and other people. Um, And we started our pilot in Stockton. We announced it in October of 2017. That was a whole month before Andrew Yang even announced he was running for, for, for president. And essentially what guaranteed income is designed to do is eradicate poverty. I am sane enough and also crazy enough to recognize that poverty is a policy choice and that we actually don't have to have poverty. By providing people an income floor, the idea is that when people say you have to teach a man to fish, they'll fish for a lifetime. They can't fish if they can't afford a fishing pole, if they can't afford bait, etc. So a guaranteed income gives folks the tools to buy the fishing pole, to buy the bait, so then they can learn how to fish and take care of themselves and their families. I really like that analogy. And during the pandemic, we have seen direct cash infusions to low and middle income people. 
But this is outside of pandemic. This is just, this would be going about your day and you also get some direct cast infusions. Is this the best solution in an absolute sense or is this just the best solution in a bad situation? Well, I would argue that folks living in economic insecurity are living in a pandemic and have it. Like poverty in and of itself is a pandemic. You look at the impact on health. You look at the impact on educational attainment. You look at the impact on brain development of babies. So I think for me, a, a guaranteed income is really about sort of how do we deal with the economic security issues that don't just affect people in poverty, but like one in two Americans can afford to run an emergency. But also to your point, I think it also helps people build economic resilience because we know we live in the time of pandemics and like $500 a month before a crisis happens makes people better positioned to deal with the crisis when it happens instead of waiting to figure out how do we help people when calamity comes. And, and I say that because particularly in California, we live in pandemics. It's a wildfire, it's an earthquake, it's a flood, it's COVID. And these happen all the, every year. And we have to give people the tools to build resilience, they can respond to those things. So tell me something, when you were in Stockton, who was the first person, who was the first group to tell you absolutely not? You said, let's do this seed funding, and they said, get out of here. Oh, everybody, right? Like Again, like the, the context <laughs> was, this is before Andrew Yang, this is before pandemic, this was just a 27-year-old mayor in 2017 say, hey, we need a guaranteed income in this country, and we're going to try it here in Stockton. So there's a lot of people who were supportive, but... Some of my colleagues on city council were skeptical at first. Um, uh, definitely people who didn't like me. That was another reason not to like me, right? And you've been associated with the phrase universal basic income, which I get is not what you're proposing at this point. Eventually, is that where you think we should be going? Is direct cash infusions to everybody or should this still be scaled to AMI or you know poverty? Yeah, I, 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 I approach the conversation from a lens that I literally, I don't live in a community or state or a country with poverty. I think guaranteed income solves for that question. And I also understand politically, it's going to be hard to get to universal before we do guarantee. Like guarantee seems like the first step to get to solving the problem of poverty and also to make sure those who don't have money have it. But I do hear arguments that support universality. And I think as we look towards the future, if there is automation, if there is displacement, if folks aren't able to have the same types of jobs, there will probably be a wider conversation about sort of an income floor for everyone. But I would say that conversation is easier had if we have something in place already, which is why guaranteed income is so important. So we're talking about policy proposals and we're talking about this country. It's been tough enough to get the minimum wage, for instance, up to $15 in a place like where I live in Los Angeles. Is that a solution to consider? Is that easier or harder to say, okay, fine, let's lift all boats. Let's give everybody a higher minimum wage. Or again, is it just direct cash infusion is about the best we can do? From my vantage point, I think it, it, it both end, right? I think we have to have a floor in, in terms of wages, but I think a guaranteed income also answers the question about what about people who don't work in traditional jobs? What about domestic people? or caregivers, mostly mothers who decide to leave the workplace and take care of their, their families? What about folks who are differently able and are able to find access to traditional jobs? What about students? What about artists? What about creatives, right? So I think minimum wage is important because it's attached to work and it sets a standard for what type of wages, what's the, the lowest wage you should be able to receive as someone who's working. But I think the guaranteed income is helpful with that, but it's also helpful for folks who are in the traditional workforce, but who are still contributing and still have bills. 
There are still a lot of people that are skeptical of this every time it comes up. Um, skeptical of the government handing out money. Critics say, you know, people will spend that money on whatever, on drugs, whatever. Um, tell us what you saw in Stockton's program. Yeah, I, I, I love this um, question because now we again we have data, it's not opinion, it's not anecdote, it's not ideology. It's what literally happened after people were giving money for two years. 98% of the money was spent on the way you and I spend money. Like, what you spend money on? Clothes, utilities, bills, food was the highest expenditure, and, and folks spend money on their children. And less than 2% of all dollars were spent on drugs and alcohol, which shows that these notions we have that somehow those who struggle with, with money, it's because they made bad choices, or it's because they just don't know how to spend money, or it's because they have terrible spending habits. But it's like, no, poverty and economic insecurity isn't an individual failing. It's, it, it, it's, it's a policy one, and policy like guaranteed income has to be used to provide people the opportunity to, again, provide for themselves and their families. Michael, we've been talking about guaranteed income. Did you think that this would become your thing? Like you got into office as mayor five years ago. Uh, were there other things that you had plans for? This is like you're such like the spokesperson for this now. Yeah. Honestly, I, at first I would get really frustrated because I was a damn good mayor. And we were leading on every issue. It wasn't just guaranteed income. We brought in the advanced peace program and ceasefire program. We just homicides by 40%. And that was kind of what I was just as invested in because I ran for office because my cousin was murdered. So I was so proud at having a impact on gun violence. I thought the work we did around the environment and climate justice. I knew guaranteed income would be part of it, but I was like, there's so many other dope things we're doing. There's so many other ways in which we're leading. But now I understand that part of it is that the economy is so foundational, right? And all the other things I cared about from education to environmental justice to um, even gun violence are easier to solve when folks have a baseline of economic security. We were reading an essay that you wrote in high school about how you didn't want to end up like your dad. Yes, from 2007, like oh, your dad no. who was in prison. And reading it now, it's very much the Horatio Alger story. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Folks, I know you're listening to this. He is playing with his hair and he looks nervous. Now, 15 years later, well, I don't want to just pull up like your high school. Something you said when you're like 17 <laughs> years old. I completely agree. I could, I completely agree. No, no, no. It, 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 it was, it was a college. You know, it was a college application essay, basically. But 15 years later, you are advocating for these direct cash assistance programs. What did it take to convince like the 2007 version of you that this is worthwhile and this is doing? What happened in the intervening years? I, I learned critical race theory in college. And I think that's why folks are so scared of critical race theory. No, it, partly, but in all seriousness, at Stanford. I came in with this mentality that I worked hard, it's on individuals, if you work hard enough, you'll be all right. And then when I took classes and spent four years learning and reading about policy and reading about action and reading about outcomes and reading about how folks could predict outcomes, not based off knowing the choices individuals would make, but based off knowing what zip codes they lived in from birth. That really, really bothered me. And I was like, well, wait. And then I thought about, I went to school with a lot of smart people at Franklin High School in Stockton, California. I have a lot of smart people in my family. And it's not to absolve individuals. Like, there's still some things I did, but no 16-year-old, for example, should have to skip lunch to save money to buy SAT prep books. 
Like that, that's like the, the, the amount of pressure I put on myself as a teenager is not normal or, or healthy. And I hate for my child to do that. So I think 17 year old me would say to me now, like, okay, I get people still should work hard and we want people to work hard, but working hard isn't enough. That if people work hard, the government needs to work hard with them. And that's sort of where I am now. Well, you had grand plans for a second term as mayor, but that did not work out. How have you been navigating that? What have these past six months been like for you? This is a terrible thing to admit, particularly on the political show. I am doing better now than I was when I was mayor. I am healthier. I am less stressed. I am happy. I see my son. I hang out with my wife. I see my friends. I get to do what I want to do and none of the stuff I don't want to do. So I think I'm so blessed to spend my whole 20s in local government. And the transition has been a little bit easier than I thought it would be because the work still continues, right? Like when I lost, there was 11 mayors doing guaranteed income. Now there's 53 mayors who are part of the group I started mayors for guaranteed income. When I lost, the state wasn't putting any money in guaranteed income. Now that I've had time to be with the governor and his team, the state's putting $35 million on the table for guaranteed income programs. Same thing with the gun violence work we did, et cetera. So yeah, I think, I mean, my wife would say in November, I was pretty miserable to be around for like the two weeks between election night when I conceded. But since then, I realized that my purpose in terms of what I'm supposed to be doing is bigger than any position. The position was just a means to an end. But the work around creating opportunity continues. And now I have much more leverage with which to do it because I don't have to worry about important things like potholes or dog parks or all the other things you have to worry about when you're the mayor of a city. Well, Michael Tubbs, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. So, Nicole, clearly convincing people this was a good idea took a lot of work. Tubbs told us that he started with his own family. Yeah, he said even his grandma was really skeptical of this idea. But like a lot of people, she ultimately decided maybe it could work after she received federal stimulus checks last year. And that's California State of Mind for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. And Nigel, see you next time. See you, Nicole. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Figland and produced by Jen Picard. Antonio Minez is our engineer. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Mark Jones is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Mellifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That is all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. 